Today, Philanthropy Part 2. Last month, we talked about charitable giving on the Cayman Islands with Rose Resnick, Vice President of Development uh, Solutions of New England, and Mike Brajali of uh, the Executive Director of Cape Cod Foundation. Both have returned to continue that conversation. Welcome back. Good to be back. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Mindy. We got we ran out of time last time. We didn't get to everything. So we're going to get to, to some of that this morning and probably repeat a little bit of some things we talked about last month. We're going to talk a little bit later in the half hour with Lynn Mason Small from the Rogers and Gray Charitable Foundation. She's going to talk about the grant process from the perspective of a local foundation. So let's start with our population on the Cape and Islands is aging. So how does that impact uh, their level of philanthropy? Well, this is an area that has uh, is a key area for growth. And interestingly enough, the Wendell Marketing Group did a study last year that said that only 30% of Cape Cod nonprofits had any kind of planned giving program. So you need to start thinking that your planned giving prospects are really 75% of them are between the ages of 70 and 78. And $20 billion was given out last year in bequest giving. 80% of plain gifts are bequest gifts. So mm-hmm. I say to Cape Cod nonprofits to really give some attention to this demographic. They are, this is the probably the largest gift they're ever going to give. And most bequest gifts come from people uh, that are your average donors. Mm-hmm. So look at those people in your database that are consecutive donors, loyal donors, build relationships with them, visit them, uh, focus on, there's many types of plain gifts, charitable mm-hmm. gift annuities, uh, real estate, appreciated stocks that can be given as plain gifts. But I say to Cape Cod, focus on your bequest gifts. That's the largest percentage that will come in. Uh, build relationships with them and visit them. Mm-hmm. You can send out mailings, a couple mailings a year. You can put things up on your website. But the best t- best uh, idea is to really visit them and be able to explain how their legacy gift will make a difference in the future. Mm-hmm. But always follow up with people. If they make a call to your office, don't put that in the pile at mm-hmm. the bottom. Put it in the pile at the top. Follow up with this constituency. It's a huge area of growth. Yeah. It is, and the demographics of the Cape uh, really back that up. Uh, I think now uh, people over 65 account for 25% of the Cape's population, which is by far the highest percentage in the state, uh, and it's one of the highest percentages in the country. The country is mm-hmm. 13%, is 65 or older. So all of those uh, ways to, uh, to, to, uh, to do planned giving, including a, a gift of an IRA or uh, of life insurance as mm-hmm. well, to add to the list that Rose uh, put out. Mm. And this really is, a, we, we talked about this last time you were here, it's all about relationships. I mean, it's it's really, it, and sometimes you don't even know it. And we, we had somebody in a while back from hospice, and they were talking about a gift that had been given that somebody that had used the services years ago, they didn't even know the story, and they were so sad about that to not know the story. But obviously that impacted this person's life enough that uh, when they, they passed on, they you know, they gave a big chunk of change. Right. And a lot of organizations don't find out that, about that until the will is read right. and they get the check and they all feel that way. And that's why get ahead of it uh, to build that relationship with that donor. But also you can determine a little bit what mm-hmm. your bequest giving is going to look like in the future with some modeling. 
All right, so we know we have this older population. Uh, how do we engage younger donors with, with the next generation of philanthropists? Well, I'd like to talk about the Gen Ys, and they were born between 1980 and 1991. And interestingly enough, research shows that 56% of them give and that their lifelong giving begins at that age group. They're influenced by their families, their friends, and their networks. Mm. They have very strong networks, and they can be very enthusiastic ambassadors for you. Philanthropy to them is time and money. They want to be involved and engaged, but they need to feel the passion for what you're doing. They want to lead and give advice from their perspectives um, for your organization, and they are influenced for their participation and their dollars by your business model and your sustainability, the impact of the gift that they're giving, and is your organization effective in the community? So my advice to nonprofits is start paying attention to them, getting them involved. You want to maybe ask them to be on the board or an advisory committee, but don't make them the only one, mm-hmm. that everyone in with the white hairs is looking to that one person to say everything. They communicate through social media, and 20 Uh, 6% of them, their first engagement with your organization is through your website, 19% by an event that they attended. Mm -hmm. So to segment it out, look at how am I going to engage them? Do I have mobile-friendly websites? Uh, Do I have online fundraising, which in sending emails to trigger we're going to be you know, soliciting and why, and add some social sharing so that they can do send those messages about your organization that they care about to others. But uh, And also have events, maybe feature a peer that they know because they like to support one another. Mm. So that will bring them to events. This group likes events. But my main thing that I want to say is plan according to their needs, not your organization's. Don't have lunch meetings. That's very hard for Mm -hmm. this generation to leave the office to go to a lunch meeting. But when you solicit them, uh, they still believe, 87% still believe peer-to-peer is the most effective for them. And then online fundraising would be number two, 69%. And maybe set up a monthly giving program because they could give much more money over the year than they can in big chunks. But finally... Think of three things that you can do, your organization can do with this group of people and get started right away. The Cape Cod Young Professionals is a good resource for I was, that. That was I, popping in my head as you were me talking. Too. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to actually add a comment. Uh, and like last time, I agree with everything Rose has just said, and she makes my role here easy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Cape Cod Young Professionals, uh, they have a fund at the Cape Cod Foundation. It was started in August of 2011. Uh, and this year, in the first year that that fund is giving scholarships, um, eight Cape Cod students were awarded a total of $24,000 in scholarships. So this is young donors making right. a real impact right now. And it's not just about giving money, uh, collecting and giving money away. It's about uh, leadership. Mm-hmm. And people from Cape Cod Young Professionals serve on the scholarship committee. They vet the applications. They make decisions. They're engaged. And I think that's what... Uh, younger donors particularly want to be uh, directly engaged in the work of whatever the, the, the organization is doing. So that's yeah. a great example. We're talking about philanthropy. Our toll-free number, if you'd like to chime in or you have a question, 866-999-4626. That's 866-999-4626. Our email address is the point. Oh, I'm here. Our email. We're having some technical problems with the email. So no email this morning, just the phone. 866-999-4626. 
uh, volunteer opportunities. Let's talk about that. Philanthropy is not just about donating money, but time is, is just as important. And we know uh, many, there are many, many nonprofits on the Cape that just could not do what they do without their volunteers. So what's the best way to utilize volunteer time? And if you're looking to donate your time or skills, are there ways to find that best fit for you? Well, one resource I would suggest is Cape Cod Volunteers, uh, capecodvolunteers.org. Um, that that organization was incubated and spun off of uh, from the Cape Cod Foundation, and they do good work. We actually have a, a volunteer who works almost a full-time schedule. It's a, She's really unpaid staff mm-hmm. and plays a vital role. Um, I was at an event. I'm fortunate enough to speak at an event at the Katuit Center for the Arts last night honoring their volunteer corps, and what a great example. 150 active volunteers. They have five paid staff. So you, mm-hmm. you try to envision the Katuit Center for the Arts or any other organization or the Cape without that volunteer corps, and it's hard to do. I think you know my advice is 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 basic, which is uh, you know to a volunteer uh, identify your passion and find an organization that that, that there is a match. Um, I would caution potential volunteers not to try to create a position that works for them that might not really be what the organization is looking for. You've got to find the match. And to organizations, treat volunteers seriously, have a job description, um, have expectations laid out, and recognize them. Like the event I was at last night, that recognition, that thanks, uh, is is critically important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Meg said it all. Last year's over 64 64- million Americans volunteered. And interestingly enough, 61% were between the ages of 35 and 54. Now skewed a little because parents like to be involved with their children's schools. But living in a demographic that we think are a lot of senior citizens, there's a lot of younger groups of people that really do want to get engaged Mm -hmm. and help out. And I've been on that website that Mike talked about. There are 200 volunteer opportunities on that website, and you can match your skills with your interests, and then they will give you a list of the places Mm -hmm. that you could do, you know, that that need you. And they've also set up some opportunity centers at the Harwich Community Center and also at the Mashpee Public Library where people can come in and talk to them. Mm -hmm. So again, you have to have passion and you have have to know that you have the time to devote to them for what their needs are, not just your needs. Right. And that's a perfect match. Yeah. Boards. All right. So let's talk about boards. And we, we sort of touched on this the last time. And, you know, there are some boards where we have we have people who, you know, God bless them, they want to serve and they're on, you know, several different boards. Um, but we don't have enough young people really engaged. So it goes back to that, I guess, your generation Y that you're talking about. Getting some of those folks on your boards is a good idea. Well, do you want to start with that? It is, well, you know, we, I remember when we touched upon this on the last show that Rose and I were on, and I would just repeat what we said then, that the best boards, I think, have a clear understanding of their roles and responsibilities. Um, in my experience, the best boards govern. Uh, mm-hmm. They set the policies for the organization, and they play a really important role in fundraising. Um, as far as engaging uh, younger poten- potential board members who are younger or or, do, or new, um, I would just encourage boards, organizations, and particularly as an organization grows more confident, to turn uh, to look beyond the immediate circle of friends and associates. It's natural to turn to the people you know and trust, but uh, look beyond that and um, and then vet potential board members. Mm-hmm. You can interview them and right. see if there's a fit. Just as we talked about volunteers, it's really about is there a match. Well, and also too, you want to as a, as a potential new board member, you want to be asking questions. There are things that you need to That's talk right. about you know, in, in determining if you're the right fit for that board, right? Absolutely. All right, Rose, I know you have thoughts on this. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, 
What I'd like to say is that prospective board members need to ask themselves some questions when they're being approached. Does the organization have a strategic plan that they review on a regular basis? What is the financial situation of this nonprofit and the condition? Are the organization's clients or constituencies satisfied with what's happening with that nonprofit? Who are the other board members and why, why are they on it? And as an individual, what are my responsibilities to be on the board and the expectations? Do I sit on other committees? But mine is, what is the board's role in fundraising? Mm-hmm. Because as I said before, today's the, the roles of boards have changed over the years from not just governance, but also to include philanthropy, time, treasure, and talent. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's very important for potential board members to ask that question and then evaluate their own interest in the board. Do I really have passion for this mission? Do I have the time to contribute that's necessary? And and my final one is, is this my top philanthropic priority? Mm-hmm. Because I think if you answer those questions, you'll know if you fit with the board or the board wants you know, needs to have you fit with them. Go ahead. When I would just add to, and, and we've all seen this, um, a lot of folks here serve on multiple boards, right. which can be a good thing, but there, we all have limited time and energy. And so, again, it is, it, what's your top priority? What's your passion? And I, I also think um, organizations should consider give or get policies. Either you give a certain amount of money as a board member, and that's a clear expectation at the outset, or you're going to find folks uh, and, that, and bundle yeah. it to raise that money. Yeah. yeah. What about organizations who are going, you know, we've had these same board members for you know a million years, and I'd like to make some changes. How do you do that? I mean, you've got, you, you might have a board that's going to fight that. Well, I think that it's very important for boards to have term limits. And that can be evaluated at the end of the term limit. And what I've seen and recommended to boards is to make those people honorary board members Mm. so that they can come to board meetings. They might not have voting privileges, but you want to keep them involved. And and they did a valuable thing in in helping your organization get to where it is. So you don't want to just say you're done. Mm -hmm. Make them an honorary board member. Invite them to board dinners uh, when it's appropriate, Mm -hmm. but keep them in your family. Got it. All right. So well, we have many small nonprofits in this region. So th- is that cause competition? How, how do nonprofits work more collaboratively? We've, we've been hearing that word a lot lately, collaboration. It's a buzzword, but it's an important one. Yeah. Uh, and I know we touched upon this a little bit last time, too. Um, you know, a, a, as a grant maker, we look for collaboration. We look for uh, nonprofits to partner together and submit joint proposals. It's um, it doesn't happen nearly as often as we'd like, um, but we every grant cycle we see a lot of redundancy uh, and a lot of potential to collaborate. So we encourage it. Um, and as an example of how we've tried to uh, kind of um, talk the talk and walk the walk, we played a role along with the Kelly and Bilzekian Foundations in helping to fund and support the merger between the Cape Cod Symphony and the Conservatory of uh, Music and Arts. And I remember Rose said this, uh, collaboration does not necessarily mean merger. That's Mm -hmm. the strongest form of collaboration, perhaps. But there are many ways. I mean, we have anywhere from 700 or more nonprofits, at least. That's the baseline number. And uh, it just, it it begs the the conclusion that there's room for collaboration. And keep in mind that Cape Cod and the Islands has 1.5 1.5 times the national average based on population of nonprofits. And it does, 
it does form, you know, competition among them. And a lot of the the reason is, is because of the overlap in services. Mm-hmm. And donors are starting to look at that and determining which organization they think does the best, mm-hmm. most effective work. So I do believe that in these times of limited resources and demand increases for services, it makes a lot of sense for the nonprofits to collaborate to make the resources go further and achieve greater results. And they do sincerely want to collaborate. And I think it's two things that keep them from doing mm-hmm. that. The competition for dollars. And they are so busy right. running their own organizations that you know, the intent is there, but at the end of the day, where do you put your time and your resources? So I say that we must rethink the way we find solutions to our most pressing needs on Cape Cod. And again, as I said, it doesn't necessarily mean a merger, but Cape Cod nonprofits would have a greater impact than they could have on their own. And there are examples. The arts and cultural groups do some collaborations. I was talking to David at Couture Art Center and, and gave me some examples. The homeless do. The hospital does. Gosnell mm-hmm. does a lot mm-hmm. of partnerships. So if we could just think about what if nonprofits on Cape Cod were driving towards the similar outcomes for children or addiction or homelessness, how much better off we would be on Cape Cod. And even if we could have forums and opportunities to share the tools and knowledge with each other that actually would drive performance, that would help Mm -hmm. um, everyone feel more collaborative and have better partnerships, even if they could pick one thing that they could work on a year would be very helpful. And as Michael said, uh, foundations and corporations, when they're giving gifts, are really tending to give in that pile that has collaborative and partnership right, let's bring Let's bring Lynn Mason-Small into the conversation uh, from Rogers & Gray Charitable Foundation. Hi, Lynn. Hi, how are you? Good. So uh, you're, I'm sure you're listening, and I, I, I'm imagining you nodding your head when we're talking about collaboration. Is that right? Most definitely. <laughs> yeah. So t- let's, let's talk um, first about the mission of your foundation and, and how you've set up your grant review committee. Sure. The, um, the mission of the Rogers & Gray Charitable Foundation is to support the knowledge prevention and intervention um, as they relate to physical safety, security, and well-being of residents in Mass, mm-hmm. and, and mainly in the areas that we serve, uh, southeastern Massachusetts. Right. And, and your grant review committee, all employees? All employees. Uh, we've set it up. We have a 14-member uh, volunteer employee committee. We do have one of our owners that sits on the committee right now, but that's actually not in our bylaws. It just happens that he's on the committee right now. Mm-hmm. So what are you looking for when you're looking at grant applications? You know, we, this, is, um, this, was, this year, 2012, was actually the first time that we opened up a, um, a grant process. In the past, we have given out grants just directly without having um, them had to go through an application. So this year in particular, we, we left it a little vague, to be honest with you, because we wanted some flexibility. We wanted to be able to really review um, all of the grants and make some decisions based on how the employees felt about the giving. Mm-hmm. Mike, I wanted, you want you to jump in here too, because um, this is a, I've sat on a few committees where we're the, you know, giving grant money, and it's amazing how you can have an application in front of you that isn't very well put together, but it really is a great, uh, you know, great proposal. Or you have some that sound really great, and, you know, once you do the interview with them, you go, well, this really isn't what I thought it was going to be. So, I mean, getting that application to really speak to what you're proposing is really important, isn't it? It really is important. And getting right to the point at the outset of the application, you should be able to say in a paragraph what what, what the proposal is going to do and accomplish what, and get, get right to what the impacts will be. 
Um, and it's tough because I've I've been on grant review committees too, and I, I my bias is to go with the project that even if it's not a beautifully written application, but you know, you know it's, it's worthwhile. Point, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and we provide technical assistance to potential applicants. We will help um, them be able to um, to submit to put their best foot forward. We want mm-hmm. to see that happen, and we also provide feedback uh, to applicants who aren't successful um, mm-hmm. so that they'll be successful in the future, whether it's a, a fund, uh, you know, a, a grant th- through one of our funds um, or, or another foundation or another charity that's right. funding them. Uh, Lynn, when you're when you're reviewing the applications, I know it's a new process of before, but what a great idea to just get the, without any application, well, there's some lucky people there. Exactly. Uh, but when you're looking at these applications, are you looking for um, something that you can fund that's going to become self-sustainable? Is it, is it sort of a, a, an initial startup thing? Are you looking to sustain things that are going? What what are you looking for when you're looking at these applications? Uh, you know, the, we had a we had a nine criteria that um, that we measured on, and sustainability plan was was one of them. Um, however, we ended up funding, as Michael said, you know, we ended up funding um, a grant that wasn't necessarily necessarily well-written or well-presented, but it was actually a pilot program. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're funding something that, that could get off the ground or it could not, but the program itself was so, it was such a necessary program on the Cape and it wasn't something that people were doing now that we thought, you know, what a great way to see if we can kickstart this. Right. So, and then the other, um, some of the other uh, grants that we funded this year definitely were already in process um, and had, you know, very uh, strict measures on sustainability and definitely were were already very sustainable programs and organizations. So what would you say are the most common mistakes people make in the grant process? Oh, boy. Um, Michael might be able to better answer that. You've only had this (laughs) first round. You go first. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, for us, because this was the first year that we, you know, we had an open grant process. You know, I wouldn't say that anybody made a mistake just because we did leave it a little bit vague. And so mm-hmm. people were, you know, people were were applying for programs that, you know, ultimately we just didn't want to fund this year, but maybe we'll fund in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that for us anybody made a mistake. It was just sort of, you know, how our employees felt about, um, you know, what we wanted to support right. this year. Right. Right. And I, yeah, and I, I would just add too. I wouldn't not not necessarily as a mistake, but I think that um, applicants, uh, nonprofit organizations, need to see if the funding source really is a fit. Mm-hmm. What do they fund? Now, in the case of the Cape Cod Foundation, we fund a broad spectrum uh, from arts and culture, environment, health, housing, education. Uh, so. But Rogers and Gray has a more specific, narrower, very important perspective. And uh, I don't know, uh, Lynn, if you've seen this, but we've certainly seen uh, proposals come in that really just were not a fit right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. So applicants should just think about the funding source and what they want yeah, to fund. Yeah, it's because it takes a lot of time yeah. to write a grant. Process. And I think – oh, Sorry to jump go. in, but we, we, we did have a couple of people that actually called, organizations that called us and said – you know, do you, this is what we're thinking. Does it fit? Should we should we bother? Basically, mm-hmm. you know, should we spend our time or should we move on to something else? And we were pretty upfront with them and said, you know, I'm sorry, but you know, this just doesn't meet the mission of physical safety or well-being at all. Got you it. know, and it, and I wouldn't want them to waste their time because it does take a lot of time. Yeah. But then you bring up a good point. It's very important for nonprofits to be doing a little research. And I think there are some that just apply to all the grants that are on mm-hmm. Cape Cod. And there's a lot of competition. Uh, the last grant rounds for Cape Cod Arts Foundation had requests of 
$112,000 for $25,000 to give. So I really say to our clients, do your research. Go to the Foundation Center. It's not a lot to join that, and you can just get your own password and research what these foundations are, even nationally Mm -hmm. or within our state. Start to broaden your horizons off of Cape Cod because there's money, you know, over that bridge that you might be able to get. And don't just apply to things here because everyone else is. I would just add to that the Associated Grantmakers of Massachusetts, what we call AGM, uh, agmconnect.org, I think is a great source. And as you said, Rose, the Council on Foundations, which is cof.org. Right. And also the Chronicle of Philanthropy is is a wonderful resource, um, both in terms of grant opportunities and learning about the philanthropic sector. Right. Lynn, any any last advice before we let you go? <laughs> uh, no, I you know I think it's we work with uh, very closely with the Cape Cod Foundation. So you know I think if any other organizations or businesses are looking to set up a donor advised fund like ours, you know the Cape Cod Foundation is really just such a great resource for them. All right, Lynn Mason Small from Rogers and Gray Charitable Foundation. Thanks, Lynn, for joining us. Appreciate Thanks, your time. Guys. I, I want to go back to something, Rose, you said earlier when you, we were talking about the Generation Y folks, and you mentioned ambassadors. And that's such, there's a key word right there, but it goes back to our networking and what this is all about. Well, ambassadors are people that are, have the networks to go out in the community and talk about your organization. And even if you look at what we're talking about today, we're talking about collaborations, which has to do with people wanting funding and donors. We're talking about engaging Gen Yers and uh, the older population. We're talking about volunteers. We're talking about boards and their roles and responsibilities. This all, this all leads to the word ambassadors. And the more that you're, I know I preach about building relationships, but I can't tell you how effective that is. Don't look at Uh, just the mail that's coming in. Look at who's sending the mail. Run reports on your loyal donors. Who could be your ambassadors? And you could have a meeting twice a year and gather these people that you want to be ambassadors who could become future board members or future philanthropists for your organization because they have networks. Mm -hmm. So I think ambassadors is a strong word and people should be using it as a non-threatening way to volunteer. And then, of course, as you said, with that group, that Jen... Gen Y group, they respond to peers. So right. that peer that's really key when you're talking about that demographic. Right. Yeah. Mike, do you want to add anything there? No? I, I agree. Okay. <laughs> and then, and finally, uh, in a minute or so we have left, uh, events. You mentioned events, and we talked about this last time. Not please, not another golf golf event, right? <laughs> <laughs> but we've got enough of those. We've got a lot of those, and again, with philanthropy on Cape Cod, there's competition for grants. There's competition for events. Although I think events have a place in cultivation, and that that my biggest piece of advice is for people to start to diversify how they're raising money, not just grants and events and counting on that, but taking that leap out to major gifts and doing some planned gifts beside your mail. Mm -hmm. You have to diversify in order to sustain on Cape Cod. Right. You want that revenue or budget pie chart to be multicolored and not have one gigantic slice and then a couple of little sliver slices. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is not a, radio is not the right uh, forum for this. uh, Yeah metaphor, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah. All right. Final thoughts. You got about 15 seconds. Anybody want to chime in here? Advice? Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> Go for it. Just 
you know, it, it's philanthropy seems hard, but it's easy. And once you dip your foot in the water to different vehicles, you'll become more comfortable. Right. Rose Resnick, Vice President of Development Solutions of New England. Mike Bajali, of the Executive Director of Kipcod Foundation. And also want to thank Lynn Mason Small from Rogers and Gray Charitable Foundation. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. Happy holidays. And Merry Cl- Christmas to my family and friends in Wareham. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for letting me get that in. <laughs> I'm Indy Todd. Thanks for listening. The Point airs weekdays at 9.30 a.m. and 7.30 p.m. We're also on Facebook at The Point, WCAI. The Point is produced by Amy Vince. The executive producer is Mindy Todd. Production assistance from Dan Tridel. Theme music by Benjamin Verdery and William Coulter. The Point is a production of the Cape and Islands NPR stations, a service of WGBH. WGBH.